Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Detroit is Different podcast. I'm your host, Kari Way Frazier, hip-hop artist, Detroit advocate. For this podcast, it's going to be a recording with an interview with somebody very instrumental to me and very inspiring to me, Malik Yakini, a reggae artist, an educator, also a farmer, also a craftsman, and a great thinker and a person that moves on action. It's a very inspiring interview. I hope that you tune in Open up your mind, open up your eyes, and also follow the story that he lays out about how so many things started. We talk about his family. We talk about Detroit. We talk about reggae and also the reggae scene and how everything started. And it's a lot of jokes along the way. It's a lot of real life along the way. But more so, a lot of the visions of somebody like Malik Yakini who stayed committed in the city of Detroit for a lifespan since 56 Moving on and forward. This is a very special podcast for me. Very special interview. It was a host of people there with me that loved what was happening. And I hope that you're going to share this and appreciate it as well. Stay tuned to Detroit is Different. DetroitIsDifferent.com. It's a movement I'm building. And it's a movement that you're welcome to. Next month, stay tuned to Detroit is Different. My guest will be Carolyn Strio, multiple winner of Detroit Music Awards, traveled the world with music, and she's one of the greatest performers you'll ever see. That's what she's known for around town and just very passionate about what she brings to the stage. Stay tuned. www.detroitisdifferent.com. Thank you.
the seas trying to get a scope on life through the windshield like windmills making these revolutions black fist in the midst of conflict trying to find some resolution fine-tuning through the youth i'm watching time moving reflection so the music and life is congruent working like a slave money gotta be made no benefits still overtaxed and underpaid government bailouts keep corporations open malls are sell out while small business closing high price on quality food pesticides cloning taking this food for thought turning the food for growing ain't no justice living in the devil's clutches and we do greater when we thinking greater of us so we plant the seeds through the raps and beats map the streets and study practice teach
to Detroit is different. Bob Malik, how are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing very well. Glad to be here with you, Kyrie. Glad to be here with your parents as well. Yes. And the greatest woman I know, greatest person I know is my mom. And also, obviously, one of the best decision makers is my father for choosing my mom. <laughs> so one of the smartest people I know, one of the best people I know. I'm going to leave that alone. In the room with someone I admire, that's you. Malik Yakini, so much you've done. Uh, I previewed it on the website. I don't even know where to start. It's just what I know. And, and what I know is in Soma Institute, I know Aquabin Reggae Band, I know Black Detroit Black Food Security Network, I know D Town Farm, I know Black, Black Star Community Bookstore, a lot of different visions, a lot of different things. So starting off with that, let's get into a question of Detroit. Who was the first person in your family to move to Detroit? Um, one of my grandfathers, and I can't pinpoint which one got here first. I have to go back. I have some records and check. But my mother's father came here from Brinkley, Arkansas. I have no idea what that is. Uh, it's about... Uh, an hour and a half drive west of Memphis. Okay. And which is a whole nother story. Maybe if we have time, you um, can kick it off. That's that's the whole. Form okay. Of well, it. I, I'll just give a, a brief. And, but let me say also, my father's family came here from Georgia. Yes, sir. And so my father's family came here. My father, my father's father came here to work for a motor company. Okay. As many blacks moved to the north from the south. And okay. so he was a tool and die maker. Interestingly, he graduated from Tuskegee hmm. and was the first black tool and die maker at the Ford Motor Company. So hmm. that's how my father's father got here. My mother's father came here from Brinkley, Arkansas. He was a printer and he went to a school that his father was the kind of the key, the lead in creating the school. And so I had heard stories in my family about this guy who created a school, he built a school and and they told me they had a big statue of him in Brinkley, Arkansas. Okay. And so I wanted to find out about him because I also was one of the founders of a school. And I said, well, maybe there's something in my genetics that has, you know, caused me to do. Maybe this wasn't of my own volition. So I wanted to find out more about this ancestor, my great-grandfather, Sandy Odom. So a few years ago, I went down to Brinkley, Arkansas. There was no big statue of him in the, in the, okay. <laughs> in the town. That was an exaggeration on the part of the family. Hey. But there was a small, there was a... Um, uh, the, the kind of cornerstone of the school that had been built. The school was gone, but they maintained the cornerstone, and so his name was on that. There was a plaque, but you know it kind of got overblown as it passed. The, the story passed through the family. But the significant thing about my great grandfather Sandy Odom is he was born in slavery in about 1853 in Mississippi, hmm. and then um, I don't know how exactly he wound up in Monroe County, um, Arkansas in a small town about 40 miles outside of Memphis. Um, but um, he ended up, he was a farmer. Okay. He was a journalist. He uh, ended up being elected to the state legislature in Arkansas. And he, the town he was in, the majority of the leadership was black. The judge was black. The most of the elected officials were black. In 1887, the white people of that town got sick of black people being in charge and basically rounded up all the black people at gunpoint 
including my great grandpa. They line, uh, rounded up the black leadership, I should say, not the whole black population, but the black leadership at gunpoint and ran them out of town, literally. And mm-hmm. so this was actually documented in stories by the American Missionary Society. And um, they mentioned my great grandfather by name and said that he resisted. And then after a period of time, he thought it best to leave in order to save his life and the life of his family. So he left there and relocated in Brinkley, Arkansas, and then created the school and was a minister. And so just the, the fortitude of that, you know, always really impresses me. And I, I stand on his shoulders to be born into slavery, be, you know, rise up, be elected to office, be a writer, have land and be run off from all of that. And yeah. then start again and, you know, be successful in that. And so that's my grandfather's father, my mother's grandfather is who I'm talking about. So his son went to the school that he created and learned printing. And also, interestingly, Louis Jordan, the the great saxophonist, went to the same school. Okay. And my great grandfather played piano, some with Louis Jordan in, in Brinkley, Arkansas. Hmm. But anyway, so my great grandfather, my grandfather came here in the early 1920s to work as a printer. And all of my life, I was born in 1956, I never saw my grandfather work for anybody else. Uh, he always ran his own business. And so that really resonated with me, kind of growing up around that in the printing business and seeing the determination that that took and the, the, the hard work that really that went into maintaining that business, you know, continues to inspire me. So both sides of my family came here in the early 1920s. Okay, now when you say printing business, was it like printing newspapers was it printing flyers was it printing what what type of prints were being made well they did lots of uh funeral programs lots Mm -hmm. of obituaries Mm -hmm. uh they did my grandfather was a mason and so they did lots of programs for masonic lodges Mm -hmm. um and then they did you know there's all kind of like black social clubs and things that would have programs and raffles and things like that they would print uh for that they didn't do newspapers so much Although okay. they did, at one point, they, they created a magazine that was short-lived. Um, that what was, was the name? A, I, I don't remember the name of it. And that was like before my time, right? Okay. So these are stories I've heard. Okay. Um, but uh, but they the printing shop they owned was on West Warren at Mayberry Grand. Hmm. And um, when the Jeffries Freeway came through there, they, through eminent domain, forced them to move. And the so... The service drive is where um, Mayberry Grand used to be, right at West Warren. But the interesting thing about it, so they had a, a two-family flat. They lived on one side, a duplex rather, not two-family flat. They lived on one side, they rented the other side out. Under the house, like, was the printing shop. It's it's kind of hard to conceptualize, but so the printing shop was, the door to it was on the corner. The next to that was the house, but the printing shop was actually under the house. And mm-hmm. so... They kind of lived and worked in the same space so they could go come outside, go in the house, get something to eat, come back down and work. And so um, that was back during the days of letterpress. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you had to set a lot of the type by hand. And then my grandmother worked what was called a linotype machine where they would make these strips of lead that would create a sentence or a phrase. Then you had to set these strips of lead in a frame and that's how you that's how you print a thing. So I, I was trained to do that as a 12, 13 year old. I worked in the printing shop. Hmm. And uh, so that developed my interest in communications, but also just the work ethic of my grandparents, seeing them work, you know, diligently day in and day out, 
and be successful was very inspiring to me. Okay, now with that inspiration of that grandparents and seeing entrepreneurship at a younger age, what was the first business you started? Because you've been connected to many businesses. First business I started probably was uh, called Culture Is Gift Shop, which, on, which was on Livernois between uh, Puritan and McNichols, right across from the University of Detroit, where I, Eric's I've Been Frame Shop is now. Uh, so his Eric's father, Ed Vaughn, had his bookstore on one side, and then my shop was on the other side. At that time, I was making leather craft and making jewelry and selling African imports. So you could actually, without going outside, you could walk from Vaughn's bookstore into my shop back and forth. So we're trying to kind of create a complex, really. What how, what time was that? When was that? I think that was 1991, 1990, 1991 or something like that. Okay. So with that business and... I, now, you know what? When you, when you say business, that actually yes, wasn't sir. the first business. And, you know, I, I guess it means it depends on what you mean by business. And I can say it could be delivering papers. I would say my first business with my sister was swatting flies. So that was... <laughs> very bad business model too we swat a fly for five cents and actually the only person that paid us was milton henry he gave us a quarter way too much work but you learn at a young age how to monetize let, let me go back in before that okay. i mean i had a i had a paper route you know if you want to consider that i delivered the, the free press in about 1972 something like that you okay. know so I get up in the morning, early in the morning, deliver the papers, go to high school. So I did that. And also, I, you know, I worked for my grandfather. So it wasn't my business. I was working in his business, got a small. That was my first job, really. Mm -hmm. But um, also about 1978, um, myself and a couple other people created a business called New Directions Communications and, Insti and Information Institute. And so we were selling books and magazines and primarily trying to get the magazines in retail stores throughout Detroit. Hmm. Uh, kind of conscious black magazines, Black Enterprise, Africa Magazine, and several others. And so, you know, we noticed when you go to the supermarket, basically they had nonsense magazines at the checkout, so we were trying to get some more serious publications. So it was a distribution company, and then we tabled at various events throughout Detroit. So, I mean, it was a business of sorts, but it was more focused on raising consciousness, and really everything I've done that's been the main thrust and then trying to make money has been just a, a necessary step to continue doing that work that's yes, kind of how we looked at it okay now within that i met you because you were my sister's math teacher aisha shula when did you become an instructor when did you start teaching um i started um teaching formally in 1970 Eight. 1979 I got hired by Detroit Public Schools and I taught uh, adult education for a number of years okay and but you know the reason I became a teacher was because I had some teachers at post junior high school who kind of got a hold of me when I was about 13 years old played Malcolm X records for us played Pharaoh Saunders for us played John Coltrane played Jimi Hendrix and so it really turned my whole head around um, in terms of black culture and in terms of commitment to our people and um, so I wanted to become a teacher with the hope that maybe I could help some young people in middle school when they're kind of that's when children are looking for their identity and trying to kind of figure out who they are as an individual 
So I thought maybe if I became a middle school teacher, I could help some young people in the same way these teachers to help me. Middle school is uh, probably, I'd say, one of the toughest places to teach uh, just because there's so much going on. But within that, what middle school did you go to? I went to Post Junior High School, which was on Midland and Greenlawn. Mm-hmm. And then who were some of the instructors that just turned you on to things like with, There were two in particular. One's name was Ronald McCombs, mm-hmm. and the other was named uh, Melvin Peters. And Melvin Peters is still in the state of Michigan. He teaches at Eastern Michigan University. He teaches African-American literature. Uh, Ronald McCombs, unfortunately, passed in the 80s. But they both were young men. They were in their 20s and came to Detroit 1968 from West Virginia. They were both kind of childhood friends. And so, you know, this, 1968, of course, is a time of great turbulence and a great time of black consciousness. So they were young men coming to Detroit in that time period. And so they were very much enlivened by the environment they were in and uh, by the times they were living in. And so they shared all kind of things with us. It really opened our heads up to think critically about the world that we're living in, about culture, politics, economics, religion, spirituality, and how we fit into all of that. And so they got us really thinking critically about our place in the world. And so at that time, as a youngster, as a 13-year-old, I really made up my mind I was committing my life to help the black community. And so I've been fortunate and blessed to stay on that path ever since that time, but it's, it's clearly directly a result of some teachers that I had that, um, you know, that really cared about us and, and exposed us to some things beyond just kind of what was in the textbooks. And that's what I was gonna ask, like how was that a part of the lesson plan? As we know that Detroit Public Schools and then the idea of African-centered education, African-centered studies, how did they introduce that within the constructs of what was happening in the classroom? Well, for um, Melvin Peters who taught English, um, it was pretty easy to do. He would incorporate, because we had a book called Black Voices. Some people might remember that. It had lots and lots of poetry by black authors and short stories. And, and so he used that as the basic text. And so the, the whole focus of the English class was basically black literature. So through examining black literature, you really kind of get an understanding of this historical journey that we've been on as a people. And instead of just looking at your own individual experience in isolation, you begin to look at it as part of this broader narrative. And so that was pretty easy to do in that class. In uh, history class, which Ronald McCombs taught, frankly, what he taught in class doesn't really stand out to me. I can't even really recall that. But it was more in between classes at lunchtime. Sometimes we hang out in his room. And then we started having rap sessions after school at the University of Detroit. We did that for about two years every Wednesday where these same teachers would come after school and we had these after school sessions to really talk about these same issues. And there was one other guy named Henry Fagan who had taught at Post prior to my getting there. And by the time I got to Post, he was Assistant Dean of Student Affairs at the University of Detroit. So he was also very close friends with these other two, Ronald McCombs and Melvin Peters. And so the three of them really conducted these rap sessions at University of Detroit every Wednesday for about two years and it really just it it really just opened our heads up and you know it just opened up a whole new world for us okay now within that was it like a formal group was this like something that was just informal like it was you come un- up informal. here and we're gonna yeah do just it. show up and you know there was a core group of us who showed up every week but there was no membership there was no name to it none of that it was just sharing knowledge yes with some younger heads yes about what you feel they should know and you all would talk about 
all types of things within the culture, within what was happening in the context of America. And you're talking 68, 69, 70 at the time? Yes, 69, 70. But also, um, not just what was going on in the outer world, but also kind of beginning to think about the inner world. And so Henry Fagan, for example, used to talk about fasting and developing self-discipline. And so that's what really started me fasting, which I've been doing that consistently uh, since the 70s. But, you know, most 13-year-olds are not definitely not. not thinking about fasting. Not, right? not at all. But, but, so, but it developed within us a, a discipline, right, mm -hmm. um, and, and a type of, of self-control that our peers didn't have. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the thing is, at that time period, all of this was very popular. It was, you know, the black movement had captured the popular imagination in the black community. And, you know, we all had Afro picks in our back pocket. I used to wear out the pocket mm -hmm. of my pants with the wood Afro pick. Okay. Anybody else know about that? Wood Afro you know about picks. that? My dad doesn't have one any longer. <laughs> I'm sure. But at one point in time. I'm certain he did. I'm certain he did. At one point in time. But, you know, everybody had big Afros and, you know, Everybody called each other brothers. This black consciousness had seeped into the popular culture. But for most people, like most things, it was a fad. So although everybody gravitated towards it then, very few stuck with it. So for some reason, I really believed this stuff, right? Okay. So I took it. I internalized it. And, right. and I just never let go of it. You know, I've evolved. I mean, I'm not still stuck in 1969, but the, I bring 1969 with me. To the current time period that informs everything that i do now within that like your friends that were with you are you in contact with any of them a, from a that few group? a few and in fact um a few weeks ago when you took the picture of me at the the tribute to chokwe lumumba yes sir there were three of us there who were all in the same homeroom hmm. one is named keith die keith is now uh, a history professor at the university of detroit and at wayne state university okay. and we have been activists in many organizations together over the years Another uh, brother named Abdul Malik, um, he was in the same class and he's been conscious also. He hasn't as much been an activist, but he's kind of maintained his consciousness and he went more in the direction of Islam, but also because of the influence of Malcolm X, right? So, you know, he kind of went in that direction. So I'm in touch with a few, uh, not, not a whole lot, but with, the, with those two in particular. Okay, now you're extremely creative as well. Let's start with reggae. What drew you into reggae? which it seems like a natural progression, but even in my exploring reggae music and what reggae is and roots reggae, comparable to dancehall reggae, comparable to original reggae, what was like the first thing that drew you into reggae music? Let me go back to um, this classroom at Post Junior High School. Okay. And the teacher putting on Jimi Hendrix album called Band of Gypsies. All right. So I had never heard nothing like that before. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then he played Machine Gun, and it, it really just blew my mind. So I decided after hearing that, I want to play guitar. Okay. So many people did. Many people were not great. But that is an amazing <laughs> record. And I can say that you are in the pocket player. You're, 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 like I said, you're, you're very creative. So the, the, I'm getting back to reggae, but I have to start with Jimi Hendrix because that's what okay. started me playing guitar. So, I mean, I developed a love for music. You know, before that, before that time period, I was listening to whatever they played on the radio. Mm -hmm. But then this teacher, again, played Hendrix for us, played Coltrane, played Feral Sound. And so we started getting into music that wasn't the popular music. 
and music that you had to really think about and you know was exploring all kind of different um, structures and melodies and ways of you know harmonies and what have you and so we started thinking differently about the music but at the same time because of this black consciousness I was drawn to the artist who whose music kind of was part of the black movement and so for example Gil Scott Heron in the early 70s you know I would listen to everything Gil Scott because he was kind of almost the only one holding it down for a while in the early 70s as far as consistently producing conscious black music then 1975 uh, a young lady I went to high school with moved to New York to go to Columbia and she came back uh, that summer to visit and she was saying she was singing this song by some dude named Bob Marley I was like who I never heard of that guy before mm -hmm. and <laughs> she was like what because New York was already kind of up on that but Detroit wasn't you know hadn't a few people knew about reggae but they hadn't really penetrated Detroit yet so I was still actually going I was in college then at Eastern Michigan University so I went to the record store on um, Washington Street and looked in the bin and they had Bob Marley records so I bought one or two and listened to it which one um, I think the first one was Naughty Dread okay and so immediately uh, these kind of revolutionary pro-black pro lyrics resonated with me mm -hmm. and then the music was almost like magical the, the rhythm was unlike anything i'd really heard before and so it was african i could feel it but it had this kind of a slower slow down kind of almost mystical kind of energy to it and so for me the reggae it combined two interests i had which was spirituality and this this uh this dedication to black liberation so the the content of it as well as the music itself really just drew me in immediately okay now playing reggae because you're right it is a slower tempo and it's one of those things that can get monotonous for a lot of musicians but staying in the pocket and being crisp and having good transitions between songs what was what did you do when you picked up to say all right this is something that i'm going to do and i'm going to begin playing and learning reggae as opposed to rock and roll or flows to soul or opposed to jazz I don't want to say opposed to because I played all those too. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in fact, sometimes when I would play with Jamaican musicians, they would get mad because they'd be like, play it straight, man, play it straight. <laughs> and I'd be like, man, I'm trying to play it straight, but I'm from Detroit and I grew up listening to Miles Davis <laughs> and, and Parliament Funkadelic and all of that. So, <laughs> so I mean, for, for me, it was never about denying, you know, I mean, I, you know, I don't think pe African people born in America, African-Americans should be ashamed at all of our heritage you know I mean you know it doesn't take second seat to somebody because they're from Jamaica or because they're from Africa you know we stand at eyeball eyeball shoulder to shoulder with everybody uh -huh. uh, you know in fact a brother was telling me once you know if you get in them arguments with people all you have to say is just say Betty Carter and conversations is finished right so anyway so so while the form of reggae and the essential message resonated, we brought this kind of Detroit energy to it too. So we weren't trying to play Jamaican reggae, right? We were bringing who we were to this form called reggae. And so, so you know, I mean, I listened to Jamaican reggae records and I would sit, you know, by the record player when they had those and play to the record. But then when we would form a band and actually start performing, Detroit kept coming through, right? So it, okay. And, and Jamaicans, they would tell us, that's not really reggae. You're not really playing reggae. <laughs> you 
you know, and some of them would get mad. We get in arguments, you know, and, uh, you know, calling us Yankees and all kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, the, you know, we did a show once with Jimmy Cliff. And, hmm. and so, you know, I asked Jimmy Cliff, I said, what do you think about black people in America playing reggae? He said, you know, you should play reggae because we reggae was created from us listening to, to the music you all did. And so, if, you know, as, as you study the history of reggae, they were listening to Motown. In fact, if you listen to some of that Motown music, the early Motown, they have what we call a reggae, the skank, which is just that guitar, bump, 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 that monotonous guitar. Yep. Um, they call that the skank. But if you listen to old Motown records, it's right there. And so they know all of that stuff. That's what they grew up listening to, listening to radio stations that were being broadcast from New Orleans and Florida and pumping the music that we were creating in Detroit and Chicago and Philadelphia to Jamaica. And they were imitating that. Hmm. So, you know, I don't buy that reggae is owned by Jamaicans. Okay. You know, I mean, it's, you know, like everything, it's, you know, all of the forces that came together to create that you know, created it. And it wasn't just the Jamaican experience. It was also the experience of African-Americans that helped to create that genre. Okay. Now within that, the reggae scene in Detroit, which man, I really need you to speak on this because it's a lot deeper than I thought that it's, it's an interconnected family of performers, DJs, supporters, people that go to shows. I remember one time I was outside of Alvin's Jazz Club and I'm driving down the street and I had to meet up with one of John Conyers one one of John Conyers aides and I walked in and it was a band rehearsing and Queen Mother Ocean Dara was like it's going down tonight. I'm like, it's going down tonight. It's like, the family's here. So it's like all these reggae artists coming in and I'm like, all of these people are from Detroit and the center is here. And yeah, we've been playing for a long time. O.C. Roberts and Baba Idris. What what was the start of that? Because I kind of look at it like Detroit hip hop in the sense of it started from one group and then it started growing. And that same collective is a family that's still together. Okay, the first reggae band in Detroit was a band called the Herbal Essence, and a guy named Horatio Bennett was the leader of that band. He's a Jamaican who's a writer, and he's also now a minister. But at that time, in the uh, mid-70s or so, he created Detroit's first reggae band. And so there was mostly Jamaicans, not all Jamaicans playing with him. And then after that, in the late 70s, several reggae bands kind of emerged in Detroit. One was called, the second was called Matsi Mela, and uh, Kamal Amin Ra was in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sundiata Keita was in it, hmm. and several others. And so they asked me to join the band. I went to the rehearsal, but there were already three guitar players there, and I was like, "Where do, <laughs> where do I fit in?" You know, yeah, good, good point. You know, it was just too much, in my mind, too much clutter. There was no mm-hmm. space where I could add anything to it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't come back to that. Mm-hmm. But you know, that that was an early one of the early reggae bands, and then um, I ended up playing a band called Onyx, which kind of helped to popularize reggae in Detroit and that started in the late 70s also and so a brother named Khalid Shakur was the head of Onyx. Khalid and I had grown up together and really started playing music together as young teenagers. He lived on the next street over from me Hmm. and so um, we played at at Alvin's as a matter of fact every Thursday night for about three years and helped to really popularize reggae in Detroit from about 
1978 until about 1981. Okay. But the interesting thing about Onyx and playing at Alvin's is we got paid $30 per man per night. It didn't matter how many people, there could be a thousand people in, in Alvin's, and we got $30. And so. <laughs> That, that sounds like the music business. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you learn what I learned in the fly swatting business. <laughs> <laughs> so Farouk Bay, also the great Farouk Bay, was a member mm-hmm. of, uh, of Onyx. And Kareem Baki, a vocalist, was a member of Onyx. And then several other people came in and out. You know, we had some people that were kind of with the Funkadelic crew. They would come in and play. And, you know, so there were lots of people who played, played with us. Uh, the drummer uh, Leonard King played with us sometimes. Uh, yeah, amazing. yeah, he's an amazing drummer. Satani Tabal, uh, who who has played with James Carter and many other artists, played with James Carter's brother, um, who's uh, Kevin Carter, played guitar with us. In fact, on the first record we put out, uh, Kevin Carter and I were the two guitarists on that. Um, so, but there was always there was this like uh, there was there were two schools of thought within Onyx, and so there was some of us who wanted to do more conscious, more militant music. And um, there were some members of the band who were kind of engaging in some behaviors that we didn't really approve of. And so those of us who were more on the, 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 the black conscious tip uh, mm-hmm. split from Onyx in 1981 and created a band called Akko Ben. And so that was the three members were myself, Kamal Amin-Ra, and Prana Ananda, who was the bass player. So lots of people know Prana's son, uh, Allende, who's a drummer around the city now. But so we created Akko Ben, and uh, Akko Ben is an adinkra symbol from Ghana that means the war horn. And so we were kind of like the militant voice of reggae in Detroit. There were some bands that were more party bands, and so we were kind of known as the band who had these serious lyrics. And um, But also we were creating a, a different sound rhythmically because, again, we weren't trying to imitate. We didn't play any cover tunes. We played all original music. We didn't play any Bob Marley because we were trying to make a unique statement to the world. And so it was reggae, but it was reggae coming out of Detroit. Um, Steve Holsey, who used to write for the Free Press, I mean for the uh, Chronicle, did a review of, of Onyx, going back to Onyx again. And he called it Sledgehammer Reggae. And so that's the kind of <laughs> approach we were coming. We were trying to like come with something that was just so so mm-hmm. hard that people couldn't you know couldn't resist it mm-hmm. and but it was again it wasn't detroit it wasn't jamaican reggae in fact it sounds more like reggae that came out of england like the band steel pulse our music sounded more similar to theirs because we had a more similar experience we don't live in the hills of jamaica i live off of six mile mm-hmm. right so that's what shaped you know my my music and so you know um we live in an, in an industrial city, you know, a hard, so that it had that harder edge to it, similar to the music that would come out of the urban areas of England. So it sounded more similar to that than it sounded like from the, than from the, more similar to that than it sounded uh, similar to the music coming out of Jamaica. Yeah, and, and listening to reggae music and what it means in this story, in Akko Ben, I think that knowing the pulse of reggae and knowing the beat of reggae and knowing the message of make reggae. It's funny that you said, I, I think I split it into two messages generally. It's like dancing and love or it's freedom and revolution. 
and that's the only two angles I've, I've ever really heard reggae from. So within the freedom and the revolution, writing the lyrics, were you instrumental in writing the lyrics and, and arranging the songs or how did that come together? Yeah, all of us wrote wrote and arranged uh, songs. So we all brought, you know, we all brought offerings to the table. Mm -hmm. And so, um, for example, I wrote a song called Atlanta that we recorded. Um, and it was about the child killings that were occurring in Atlanta in the early 1980s. I don't know if you're even familiar with that, but no. I'm sure the other folks my age or older remember that. There were a number of young black men who were disappearing and being killed and it might have been 12 or something like that. I don't remember the exact number, but so I wrote a song called Atlanta and the lyrics were another child is dead in Atlanta. And it kind of talked about that. And it was a, a song mourning that, but also, you know, kind of urging us to, uh, to, to stand up and, you know, to take action on our own behalf and to protect our children and what have you. So, you know, but so we would write lyrics that would respond to contemporary things that our people were going through. We would write lyrics about the need for pan-African unity, you know, for African black folks in the Caribbean to, to work together and unite. You know, we would write lyrics about spirituality, about the need to transform our consciousness. So all of us wrote, myself, Prana, Kamal, all wrote lyrics and music. And But what generally happened, I mean, somebody would come to the band with the tune partially worked out, but then the others would also contribute to the fullness of it. So all the songs we publish, we will put everybody's name on it. So although we might have had a main writer, um, everybody ended up contributing something to to the fullness of the song. Okay, and also, this is something I always talk about just as a rapper. Access to a studio today really is like right now, I'm recording off my laptop, I have an M track, M audio box, we can do this. When I started, and when I started was 2000, it was hard to get access to a studio. So I can only imagine in the 70s, getting access to a studio was not always open doors. You needed to know somebody, you need to rehearse things, it costs a lot of money, having engineers with access to things. So recording the music. When did you get into recording music? What studio did you record at? Who helped bring that together? The first recording I did was with Onyx and uh, we did a song called Dread Wave that got some popular play. In fact, the main person that played it was Mojo who was on WGPR at the time. Okay. Um, believe it or not, we appeared on the scene. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to have to pull the tape. Henry Tyler is going to be one of my guests. If you can get that tape, I would love to get it. I've been asking people if anybody has a copy of it. I'm going to so, put Henry Tyler so on the we, spot. So we lip sync. The song had, first of all, the song had no lyrics. So, I mean, we <laughs> pantomime. I guess it was an instrumental. So... So we were on there dancing around. With it our was like Soul Train, yeah, something like that. And then, you know, people were dancing around us. And um, so, so that was the first. I think maybe the first thing I recorded. And what studio did we do that in? Um, I really don't recall to tell you the truth. But you know, the thing is, it wasn't hard to get into a studio. If you had the money, it was no problem. So that was, so that was the thing. You know, if you had the forty dollars an hour, fifty dollars an hour, sixty dollars an hour, whatever they charged. You could you could do it, but usually a studio wouldn't sell you one hour of time. You had to buy a block of ten hours, so you had to come in with four hundred, five hundred, six hundred dollars. And then also, that was before the days of everything being digital, 
where you could edit things digitally and if somebody made a mistake you can just look at the at the graph and take that one note out you couldn't do that so if somebody messed up you had to go back and record it again yes right so you you didn't want to come in the studio sloppy you wanted your stuff to be tight so you weren't wasting time you didn't want to develop the concept in the studio you want to have all that worked out all the parts worked out come in and and record and be efficient so uh but we worked in several studios um the one probably that I liked the most and that maybe we did the most recording in is Sylvia Moy studio, which is on the corner of Woodrow Wilson and um, Webb. And mm. so you really from the outside, you would never know it's a recording studio. It's called Masterpiece Studio. Uh, but Sylvia Moy was a writer with um, Motown. And um, I think she did a song called Pillow Talk. I think that was her, her big hit, if I recall. I could, I could be wrong on that. But but she, you know, had some popular acclaim and did a lot of writing of some of the Motown songs, used her money to invest in a studio. And so it's in a house. You would just think it's a house from the outside. But the basement of the house is a recording studio. So we did several things there. We did some uh, we did a theme song for Detroit Black Journal um, um, in the some at some point in the 80s, because Kamal Amira was the operations manager for a number of years at Channel 56. And so we recorded that. They used that as the theme song for a number of years. Uh, we did a song there with uh, a Neb House, who I know was one of the co-owners of Broadside Press, uh, called Calling All Brothers, where we took one of the poems that she had written and um, we put it to music. A brother named Clyde, whose uh, last name is escaping me right now, Clyde Giles. I don't know if anybody knows Clyde, knew Clyde Giles or not. But he uh, actually read the poem that Aneb had written. Um, and then, then several of us who played together in Aqua Ben and a couple other people uh, did the music for it. Michelle McKinney was one of the background vocalists for that. Um, so, in fact, that's uh, somebody posted that on Facebook a couple of months ago, Kamal Amira, so people can actually listen to that. Uh, I think if they go to Aqua Ben, A-K-O-B-E-N, Aqua Ben's Facebook page, you can actually hear that song. But we did a number of things there, and really most of the stuff we've recorded was never released. And that's the second part of what I say going to the studio was tougher, because before cassette tapes, when it was all vinyl, and that was what was being sold, vinyl even to this day, it costs a, it costs a lot to press up vinyl. Yeah. So what was the first project you had for release and sell? The first one was Dreadway by by Onyx. Onyx, okay. And so, but I just played on that. I didn't have anything to do with the pressing and the selling. The leader of the band kind of he handled all of that. And uh, come to think of, we didn't get paid a dime for that. In fact, most of the stuff we played on, we didn't get. Okay. It was kind of it, it was it it was it was what we call a brother contract. A brother contract. A brother contract. Yeah, that's, you know, like, you know, you're my brother, so come on to the studio and play on this. That's, that's, and so, that's definitely going to go in the headliner. You know, brother contract. It, uh, another group uh, that kind of grew out of Onyx was a group called Nomads, with the Kareem Baki was the vocalist for. He was the head of the Nomads. Kareem Baki had sung with Parliament Funkadelics. He was from Atlanta originally, lived near Esquire. We were talking about Dexter and mm -hmm. the Bolodrome earlier. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> So I, that's where I learned the bowl because my father was in a league at the Bolodrome. But, you know, they had a bar there and Coltrane and Miles and people would play in the bar. But anyway, so Esquire was down the street from that. But Kareem Baki lived uh, right across the street from Esquire. And um, so he created a band called Nomads. And we also did a, a recording that um, I can't even remember the name of it, frankly. But 
um, for a number of, of months, it was in the top 10 chart internationally of, um, I forgot this particular music magazine, but but again, never never saw a dime from that. Mm. Ain't that something? That's, <laughs> that's a general story. Yeah, you know, it, you know, it's interesting. Uh, a few months ago, Kamal Amirah called me and he said, uh, the first, well, let me back up and say, the first record Akko Ben put out was a record called I Am One. That was on the A side. And in fact, we, we, we did something unique. We had side A, and then you flipped this, the record over, and it was side A. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that sounds like the same song twice. No, it wasn't. It, it was, wasn't? Uh, no. So the other A side I wrote, which is the song I... I told you about called Atlanta. Okay. And the other A side that we really were promoting was called I Am One. Okay. And Prana Ananda wrote that. But so a few months ago, Kamal called me. He said, Man, I went online and they selling they selling our it was a it was an EP. It was a single um that looked like a 45, the size of a 45, but it was a 33. Hmm. But so he said they're selling this this store in England is selling our record. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean we don't think about it, but you know, things coming out of Detroit, people really appreciate it around the world. So I went online and and I because we were trying to see how many of them did they have, what were they selling it for? And you know, they were selling it for something like maybe $35 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And but they said they only had one. They they responded to. I didn't tell them I was in the band or why I was inquiring. But, <laughs> but you know, just sometimes we never know how far-reaching what we do uh-huh. can be, and how you know has this international influence. So I forgot what your question was actually. First album released, and that was that answer. And now let's go to biggest show. What was the show that you remember as your favorite show? Favorite show? I don't know. One of the favorites was a show we did with Mary Makiba. At, at Ford Auditorium, we had a chance to open for her. This was when I was in Onyx. Mm-hmm. We opened for, um, between Onyx and Aquabin, we opened for lots and lots of major reg- international reggae artists. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we played a show with Jimmy Cliff. That was at the Royal Oak Theater. Uh, we played with um, Judy Mowat, who was one of the background singers for Bob Marley, a member of the I-3s. We played a show with Freddie McGregor, who was a really well-known um, reggae, reggae artist. Sister Carol, who was a well-known reggae artist. Uh, Sugar Minot, all kind of, you know, I mean, all the international names. There, at one time, there was a reggae scene in Detroit. That really doesn't exist now. And mm-hmm. so you had lots and lots of international artists coming in and out of Detroit performing. And usually you would have a local band that would open for the international band. So I can't even think it. I mean, we played for countless international what, artists. Around what time was that? And who were the promoters putting on the shows? Um, this was from, it was during the, I think the 1980s was the high, the, the heyday of it, the high point, and maybe the early 1990s. And then it began to wane by the maybe mid 1990s. So probably from like 81 to 91, 92 was the heyday of it. And there was a place in what we call Pullums that had uh, Pullum's Place just Where, like, what uh, were kind of what would um, I don't know if you know where Mel Salon is on Woodward um, south of West Grand Boulevard south of the where the train station is a couple blocks mm-hmm. I, I don't remember the exact street um, in fact they're doing some construction now right there where uh, where Pullum's was is um, that where like I, I see a sign that always said Caribbean food 
and it's like a different color. No, not that's that not place. it. That, that was a restaurant that a Jamaican opened. It was open for about a month and he got killed. Hmm. Yeah. But no, it was on the other side of Woodward. And so Pullum's uh, was owned by a, a gentleman who owned it. It was a, um, a hall that, you know, people would rent out for, uh, you know, banquets and what have you. Mm-hmm. And so he would have live reggae every Friday and Saturday. And that really helped to make a reggae scene in Detroit because it was a place that local bands could play. But then also you had these, you know, you had large international groups that were coming through Detroit because there were lots and lots of people who were interested in, in reggae. Frankly, the reggae scene has always been predominantly white. And so, and that, you know, a lot of that has to do with how reggae was promoted. It really kind of came to the United States via England. And so Chris uh, Blackwell, who owned Island Records, he kind of listened, he was from Jamaica originally, but he moved to England. He listened to the Jamaican reggae and kind of added some elements to it. He, like he added the rock guitars and because he wanted reggae to have the same appeal as rock music on the international scene. And so it kind of came to England first then came to the United States via England. And so it was promoted like rock music was promoted and it was kind of promoted to the rock crowd. And so the, the reggae audience was always predominantly white. That's something that concerned Bob Marley and he really wanted to connect more with African-Americans, especially towards the end of his life. And that makes sense for a lot of his music. And you also just explain why I always wondered why Peter Tosh did the Johnny Be Good, but that makes complete sense now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And within that, so with Akko Ben and the reggae scene, you're also an instructor, you're also teaching. What was the time when you made over to Aisha Shule and then in, Sor- in Sorma, to begin like how, when did this transition happen at the same time because i know being in a group it seems every time i do something even last week i had a show and the drummer was like man i love that song and you see the big eyes and people have big visions and it's like we can do a lot of stuff with this and i just like performing at this point now i like to flatten my expectations do what i'm doing love what i'm doing whether one person listens or i'm the only person listening or a thousand people listen it is what it is but as this is happening with the group and the band you're also an instructor and building a family your son Duele is like my age so what's what's happening outside of reggae at the time in your life as reggae is becoming more engulfing okay well 1975 the same year that I was introduced to reggae by my friend who went to school in New York I also met Mama Imani Humphrey and uh and they were members of the Alexander Crummel Center for Worship and Learning in Highland Park on Glendale, right, at 2nd. And so it was an Episcopal church that at that time had a very uh, progressive minister named uh, Quasi Thornell. And so he was bringing kind of this African-centered thought to, to the church. And Mama Imani and Mama Malkia, her sister, and several others were part of this church family, Harold McKinney and several, several others. And so... Out of that, they had decided they were going to create a school. And I was interested in independent black schools also because I had read a book called From Planet to Planet by Haki Matabuti, formerly Don L. Lee, who, of course, Broadside Press was instrumental in promoting to the world. Um, and the world has slept on Broadside Press, I want to say that. And I'm saying that because Hilda Vest is here, who was formerly one of the owners and helped to, helped to salvage uh, Broadside 
but a lot of people have really slept on the critical role that Broadside Press played nationally, internationally, in promoting the black arts movement and poets that you know are well known now, like Don L. Lee. He wasn't well known when he was published by Broadside Press, uh, like Sonia Sanchez, like Amiri Baraka, and many others, you know, who became you know part of kind of the black cultural movement. You know, had their writings published by Broadside Press right here in, in Detroit. Uh, Dudley Randall, who, you know, again, lots of people have just slept slept on that. But um, I don't know how I got to that. But uh, you got to that. The Crumble Center, Aisha Shule in the center, yes. and just more so the roots of African-centered education, yeah. starting your family, and also being in a reggae band. Yeah. So I think the way I got to Broadside Press is that uh, at one point, before the Vest took it over. The Crummel Center actually took over Broadside Press also, and it was housed in the basement of the Alexander Crummel Center. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but anyway, so I met Mama Imani around the same time, and they were having this discussion about creating a school. And um, so that resonated with me a lot because I read uh, Haki Matabuti and this idea about creating black institutions. And so almost from the beginning, you know, even though I was still in college at Eastern Michigan University, you know, I connected with her and would do what I could do to assist with the school, to volunteer and what have you. And then by uh, 79, when my first child was born, of course, I wanted my child to go to Aisha Shule. Mm -hmm. And um, that was the only African-centered school at that time. And so uh, by the time she was ready to go to preschool, I was uh, volunteering at the school, you know, because I couldn't afford the tuition really. And so mm -hmm. I would volunteer in exchange for a partial tuition discount. And so that's really, that was my introduction to Aisha Shule. I was teaching during the day at Detroit Public Schools. Then I would come in the evening and volunteer uh, at the Aisha Shule and usually close the school up and kind of do the after school program in exchange for a tuition discount so that my children could go there. Okay, so when did you become an instructor at Aisha Shule? Um, there um, are, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I don't remember exactly. It must have been. It must have been around. What year was Dara there? Yeah, I think it was around that time period. Um, I was still teaching in Detroit public schools, but my hours had been reduced. And so I had a few hours, I was doing a dual teaching thing. So I taught it to Shule for a few hours and I still taught it adult education. So that probably was about 86, 87, 88, sometime around that time mm -hmm. period. And then in 1989, I'm sorry, 1988, I walked away from my job at Detroit Public Schools altogether. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanna just share a little bit about that with you. Please do. Um, during that time period, these leather African medallions were very popular. Yes. They're black and they had a little red, black, and green mm -hmm. Africa in the center of the medallion. Mm -hmm. And rappers started wearing them and they became very, very popular. I mentioned earlier that I did leather craft. I had learned to do leather craft in the early 1980s and had gotten pretty good at it. And so as these medallions became popular, I said, oh, I can do that. In fact, I had a medallion that I, I had bought in New York some years earlier. Mm -hmm. And so I looked at how it was constructed and I deconstructed it and started making them. And so I quickly realized that I could make more money doing that than I was making teaching in Detroit Public Schools. 
Now, there was another factor that I'm, I'm going to tell you. I'm putting some of my personal business out here. I probably shouldn't, but I'm going to do that. And that is that I had a child support issue, mm-hmm. which which was an unjust issue I, 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 because I have never not supported my children. I don't want to get into the specifics of smash, bash anybody else. But the reality is they were taking so much out of my check that I couldn't survive on what I was making in Detroit Public Schools by the mm-hmm. time they took so much childhood. I literally mm-hmm. couldn't survive. And so I stepped out of the overground economy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. And stepped into uh, what some people call the gray economy or the the economy where um, there's no there's not receipts and you know <laughs> and, that is the American way and it's not traceable I was kind of more into that economy mm-hmm. so that way because there was no paper trail and I, I really need to watch what I'm saying but uh, okay. <laughs> I'll just say I was able to retain more of my income operating in that manner than I had been able to retain when I had a paycheck that had traceable income that could be mm-hmm. garnished and what have you. Yes, sir. And so I started making these medallions and they started getting more and more popular. And so I hired two crews of people that worked with me. One crew started at eight o'clock in the morning, worked till noon. And the other crew started about one o'clock and worked until about six. And all we did all day long is we produced these medallions by the dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens. And then were they the, just being so that sounds like you were shipping medallions to other places or were they just primarily here primarily in Detroit. in Detroit and we would go to hip hop clubs at night and set up tables and sell medallions. So Awesome and, Dre probably had you were like one of his best places to go at the time. Awesome Dre is like one of I know my favorite awesome rappers. Dre is, yeah. And I can only imagine also Chaos and Maestro were probably just always looking for like you just kept making new designs where people just were like i want that one, well yeah, it started one. out everybody was doing the black medallion with the red black and green africa but then there was so many people doing that then people started you know competition sometimes breeds creativity Ingenuity. so we had all kind of various so i started my signature medallions started being one that was made out of snake skin and kente cloth hmm. and so i would i would um and then also, let me say, we progressed, we started using technology. So when I first started, we were cutting out the Africa shape with an X-Acto knife and using scissors to cut the circles. And then we started like, you need some steady hands and some good crew. Yeah. So, but then we started, you know, investigating, how can we do this on a larger level? And so I bought a press, a hand press that I just mounted to a table that we could start. Mm. And we bought, we had dies made, cutting dies made, so we could start stamping these pieces out. And so... Uh, so what I would do is I would take a strip of leather and glue snakeskin on one and glue kente cloth on the other, and then we would stamp them out. And so on one, on the snakeskin, I would have the Africa shapes, and we would put the Africa shapes inside the kente cloth medallion. And then we take the shape of Africa with the kente on it and put that inside the snakeskin medallion. Hmm. And so I was able to sell those for a few dollars more. So I could ask more. The kind of going price was about $10 for the regular medallion. I could sell mine for 12 so it wasn't a whole lot more, but you know, if you sell enough medallions for twelve dollars, you got some money. So I, mm-hmm. I had a knot in my pocket all the time. I mean, I was walking around, <laughs> I was walking around with seven, eight hundred dollars in my pocket always, mm. and had a crew of people who were who were being paid to do this. Mm. Now, several people got into it and started doing this, you know, because there was so much money being made, mm-hmm. and so several of us uh, called a meeting and we formed a collective. 
and we uh, rented a storefront on Oakland and Owen, and then we bought what's called a clicker press. We found an industrial size press that we pulled our money together to buy, where we could kick these things out. You know, it was a stamping, like a <clears throat> mm-hmm. that kind of thing, right? So, mm-hmm. And then, you know, we paid some younger guys to dye these pieces. And hmm. so we started, we agreed that we would collectively work and produce the basic medallion, the red, black, and green medallion collectively. Then everybody could still do whatever their signature piece was individually. So I still have my, uh, you know, snakeskin and kente medallions, but we did this standard medallion collectively. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that worked well for a while. And then some of the brothers in the group became a little unprincipled and started violating some of the agreements that we had. And then he's that brother contract. Then eventually, it, it, <laughs> eventually that fell apart. But also what happened is in New York, Koreans got into the market and they started mass producing these things in sweatshops in New York. There were people, there are several people who became millionaires off of these medallions. But so the Korean, some Koreans started producing them in sweatshops and started selling them at three dollars. And so we couldn't compete with that. No. So we're still trying to sell ours for $10 and people are selling them for three, four, five dollars at the bottom fell out of the market. So the people who got into it early and were able to make lots and lots and lots, thousands of them, some of those people became millionaires. You know, we, we made money, you know, uh, not huge, huge, huge amounts of money, but you know, I was, I was happy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but for me, the most important thing is that's put me on the path of independence because since that time, that was 19, 88 when I walked away from my job and I I never resigned from Detroit Public Schools just after the winter break I just didn't come back and so so I probably need to check I'm sure I got some money there that I need to you know so I just never came back okay at that time I was a sub that's another that's a whole nother story so it's not like I had a regular classroom I just abandoned the students Mm -hmm. but I just you know I was sick of subbing you know and so I just didn't come back but um but the thing is, since that time, I haven't worked a job where I didn't sign the paycheck. So that put me on the path of independence. So, you know, I've been working either for myself or for an organization that I co-founded since 1989. So that's been a beautiful thing. And starting with that, let's go to the school. The roots of the school, where it started. And how many students did you start off with? Okay, I, I need to give you just a brief story, and I'm going to try. I'm sure. not going to get into a lot of detail about this, but sure. Mama Ibani is my mentor, and I stand on her shoulders, and I love her tremendously. Mm-hmm. In 1989, I was teaching at Aisha Shule in the afternoon. I make medallions all day, and then I would run up there at about three o'clock and teach math. And you seem like a very difficult instructor, and I'm happy Dar had you as opposed to me. Because it just it just looked like Dar was doing so much homework. Everybody in their class, Dar, Peely, some of the students, they were like, you learn, but Baba Malik is, you you were laying math on them. Okay. Um, so I'll just say without going into all the grimy details that Mama Imani and I had some differences. Mm-hmm. I raised some concerns at a parent meeting as a teacher um, because... I saw some deficiencies in the students I was teaching, and I thought it was serious enough that it needed to be addressed. Um, Again, without going into the details, the criticism was not taken in the spirit that I thought I was offering it, Mm -hmm. and um, it resulted in a parting of ways. And again, I don't want to go into all of the 
dirty, grimy details because since that time, Mommy, Imani, and I have have of course reunited, and we have great love and respect for each other. And so, dragging all those details out of out of the historical closet, I don't think would serve any good function. No, but but I'm I'm telling you that because I had no intention of starting a school. I was perfectly content to be Mama Imani's kind of right hand man, and um, so because I had to exit the school not of my own accord um, and also my two children um, were disenrolled um, I had a situation where my children were out of school had been in an African Center school all of their life I think my son was in the third grade my daughter was in the fifth grade and I couldn't see just putting them taking them from that environment putting them in Detroit public schools so I started homeschooling my children and then because of the way I exited Aisha Shule, some other people left because they thought I had been dealt with in an unprincipled way. And so eventually there were seven children who were out of school and some of those other parents started saying, well, can you homeschool my child also? So I started taking the children to the library, the main library. And uh, so we had this, we, we would have school every day and we'd have a, you know, we'd go from math to English and social studies and, you know, we were, we were doing it. And so then uh, Kalindi Iyi said, well, we should start a school. And so we had a meeting in November of 1989. And um, so I knew what it took to start a school because I had watched Mama Imani and watched the tremendous amount of work she put into it. And so I wasn't gung-ho to just jump into that. And so, you know, we sat around a circle and everybody was like, yeah, right on. Let's start a school. Let's do it. <laughs> and, and I said, well, now, you know, this is a long term venture, right? This is something <laughs> this is not some fly by night thing. This is not where we go run around and protest with picket signs for two days and then they fall apart. This mm -hmm. takes long term commitment. They were like, oh, yeah, brother, we we go do it. We with. So needless to say, by the end of the first year, most of those people are gone. Oh, man. So. So I'm saying that to say that it's not like I set out and set a plan. I said, let's start a school. It was more like we got these children out of school. These other parents have, have pulled their children out. What are we going to do? And so we started, frankly, out of a crisis. And we start. So if anybody's considering starting a school, don't start it like that. OK, let me just <laughs> tell you, because we had no curriculum. We had no furniture. We had no pencils no paper, no textbooks, no uh, economic plan, uh, none of that. All we had was this zeal and just knowing that we had to teach our own children. So Kalindi had a martial arts school on Woodward and Davidson. He let us use space in his martial arts school. We were in one room that was about the size of this room. And so Sister Kianga, I don't know if you know Kianga, she teaches at Timbuktu Academy now, she had one half of the room and she had the students who were in kindergarten through second grade. I had the other half of the room. I had the students who were in third through fifth grade. My daughter was the oldest student at the school, so we only went up to fifth grade. We were in the same room. We had a bookcase kind of dividing one second from the other. And so we were really a guerrilla school because we had no license to operate a school. We, we had no papers that we'd fill out with the state. And frankly, what we were charging in tuition, when we added it up, we got about $2 per hour, the two teachers. And she was a single mother with two children. Her husband had recently left her, who 
because Friday, that uh, by the way, had been the bass player in the band I was playing in. And, okay, that adds new dynamics. Yeah, that isn't that was an interesting dimension. Um, <laughs> but so she's a single parent with two. So I told her, you just keep it all. And because I was making jewelry still yeah. on the side and making medallions, so I had another source of income. Uh -huh. And by that time, I had a, a, a kiosk down at Greek Town. And so I would work during the day, then Thursday, Friday, Saturday evenings, I would go set up my jewelry and stuff on this kiosk at Greek Town. So I had an uh, income. So she just kept, I let her keep all the money so she could, you know, try to put something together to survive. So, um, but. We had another brother, I'm not going to say his name, who worked in the warehouse at Detroit Public Schools. <laughs> he, was, he was one of the parents. And so... Okay. Um, That's what the brother contract works. So, um... He kind of said, yeah, you, well, you know, this stuff is going to be thrown out anyway. So, you know, you all get a mm -hmm. truck and you can come. So we loaded up. We got desks. We got okay. used textbooks. We got okay. all kind of stuff. And we brought it in this one little room that we had. And um, so that's how we started. Now, we quickly realized that we had 12 students when we began. We quickly realized that we could not make ends meet with 12 students and that we had to have a larger student enrollment for the school to survive and for us to be paid a livable wage. Mm -hmm. And so we realized if we're going to attract other students, we have to be able to like put up a sign and we have to have a phone number. And we, and we, so we came out of the underground. We, we had to emerge into the, into the light of day, which meant we had to begin operating according to the law. And so this is the first time I've ever publicly told this story. Okay. So let, let, let me, let, okay. let me finish. Let me, so... So we had to, you know, one of the big things about schools is you have to be able to pass the fire marshal inspection. And so, you know, that often can require extensive renovation. And it's a good thing because we want children to be safe in schools. You don't want them mm -hmm. to be in a situation where something, you can have electrical fire and somebody gets killed or hurt. So, you know, I mean, in retrospect, that's a good thing to have those regulations in place. But so we had to figure out how are we going to, you know, adhere to that. So, um, so by 1990, we... Um, we rented another place. We were able to put up a sign. We had a sign, paint a painted sign. We had brochures that we put out. And then our enrollment increased to about 50 or 60. Hmm. And so it kind of stayed right in that range from 1990 up until about 1994. And so by that time, we had moved into the YMCA in Highland Park where Aisha Shule had been prior. So I knew they had been there. And so I knew that probably it was if, up to code. It probably was up to code. We probably could operate in that space. And it was vacant. And so we negotiated a contract to operate there. And um, so, um, so we, we but we were still struggling financially. And at that time, the highest paid teacher was making $10 an hour. And, you know, that's not really a livable wage. I mean, Obama now is trying to make the, the minimum wage $10.10 an hour. Um, so that's not really a livable wage. And often I would come home on Friday with less money on payday, with less money in my pocket than I went to work with. Because remember, I'm making jewelry on the side in the evenings and I got money. And also I think by that time I had opened Culture Is, the store on Libanon that I told you about earlier. So I had some income. It wasn't making a lot of money, but um, I had some, some money coming in. And... Um, but it, it wasn't 
you know, it wasn't sufficient. And so we started, you know, this discussion started coming up about charter schools. And it was a national discussion. You know, first there was a discussion about vouchers and then people started talking about uh, charter schools, this new kind of school where uh, schools can be kind of independently operating, get state tax money to operate. And so, you know, we, we looked at it carefully and we thought about it um, because we wanted to make sure that the integrity of the institution wasn't compromised. But at the same time, you know, we thought our children deserved new textbooks and supplies and teachers deserved the livable wage and we didn't have any of that we had zeal we made our own materials and we did well you know we did it well students were doing very well academically but it just wasn't sustainable like that and then the other thing we find out is that a lot of the people who were parents at the school if the choice came to on friday when it's time to pay tuition to paying tuition or paying the gas company which at that time was called mishkan will cut you off guess who got paid it's not even a choice it's not a choice and then they come to me you know because i'm a brother and you know bob Malik, you know <laughs> we know you love black people and you know <laughs> so, so so a lot of times on friday i wouldn't have the money to meet the payroll to meet the whole payroll so it was always like juggling trying to figure out which teacher I could convince that week not to get paid mm. and it usually it meant me not getting paid mm. and also around that time period my wife at the time sister Nefertiti some people might know Nefertiti who runs the hair salon over on um, Willis and Cass uh, she was pregnant with with my now youngest child mm. and so she wasn't trying to hear me coming home on Friday with less money in my pocket on payday than I went to work with because I had to go in my pocket, mm. take the money I used, I earned making jewelry to pay other teachers. She mm. wasn't trying to hear that. Okay, mm. so that caused some strife, let's yeah, just it say. Could. <laughs> it could. Yeah, it that could. caused some strife and some uh, some discord. But um, so we examined this charter law very carefully and we decided that after vigorous debate, that we can still maintain the cultural integrity of the institution because at that time the charter charter kind of required two things it required financial accountability which we weren't stealing the money we were going to use the money for exactly what we said we were getting it for and it required uh, uh, that you take the MEEP test the standardized test that all students in the state take and that students do well on it and so we didn't have any fear of that because our students were blowing tests out of the water anyway you know we were a small school we had small classes we had ridiculously uh, dedicated teachers, and th so the students were excelling. So we had no fear of that. So we said, well, you know, let's do it, let's go for it. And so we first applied to Highland Park Public Schools and because we were in Highland Park, and they ran us in circles for about two years, just ran us through a maze, frankly. And then one day, the uh, superintendent at the time, whose name escapes me, I had a meeting Mr. with him. No, it wasn't Cartwright. Mm -hmm. uh, he's now deceased, but I had a meeting with him, and he, he told me straight up, we're not issuing you a charter. We're not going to rent you a school. None of that because you competition for us. So he just came clean finally. That, we, well, see, we've been man. trying to make it a win-win situation because they had a closed school right down the street from us. Mm -hmm. And we said, well, look, you got this closed school that now is a, 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 a trap for crime and dope. Why don't you rent it to us you get some income we get the building you know then we're also trying to work out things like we can buy our it services from you we're you know trying to make an argument where we can make this a win-win thing finally he just was straight up 
We ain't doing none of that. So around that same time, our attorney, Larry Patrick, came to us and he said, Oakland University is about to issue some charters. And so he was partnering with a woman named Anna Amato, who had a consulting company. And so on our behalf, they filed an application to Oakland University. And I never went to Oakland and spoke to them. They never even saw me. They never met me. They met Larry Patrick and this white woman who were kind of representing us. And so in 1996, I think it was, they issued a charter. And um, so they were new. We were in the first batch of schools that they chartered. Let me add another factor. Aisha Shule had gotten a charter the year before, I think from Detroit Public Schools. When, they, when Aisha Shule got its charter, we immediately lost 25% of our student body. Mm. And some of our teachers, they started looking in that direction too, because you know now yeah. they're, they're getting paid a livable wage, and they still our teachers are getting paid eight nine dollars or something mm. like that. So that's one of the reasons we decided to go in that direction too, because you we realized we were in a competitive environment. Mm-hmm. So um, so we got the charter from from Oakland University, and we operated as a charter school from 1996 or from 1997. I think we actually started operating as a charter school until June of last year when Oakland decided they were not going to renew the charter. And that's a whole nother story, maybe for a whole nother episode. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you, I resigned from the school in 2011. And uh, I'm sure Oakland University, the officials there were very glad to see me resign (laughs) because um, I just, you know, I, I learned early on that um, I just don't compromise who I am and I don't compromise with the system of white supremacy. And so, I mean, I know how to be tactful and what have you, but at the same time, you know, there's a time for being direct. And so I was very, I was cordial with them, but I was also very direct. And so I was a force to contend with, they, that they would rather have not dealt with. So when I resigned, they were, I think they were a little happy of it that they didn't have to deal with me anymore. Now, even though at this time, you won a very acclaimed award. It's like Educator of the Year. What was the award that you won? In 2006, the Michigan Association of Public School Academies uh, gave me the award as Administrator of the Year. And that was controversial, too, when they gave it to me because I made a speech when they gave it to me, and the speech was talking about white supremacy in education. Mm -hmm. And so... (laughs) So it was like about 2,000 people in the auditorium at Cobo Hall. And um, so all the black people, most of the black people, they were like, they were, they were, they were happy. They were tapping. You hear what he said? And then and the Arabs, too, who went on this, they were standing up. They were cheering because they, there's this kind of cultural uh, dominance that Eurocentric culture has. And so other people feel it, too. They might just not speak up. And especially, you know, the Arab population, a lot of them are new to the country. They're trying to figure out how to fit in and how to be good Americans. And so they don't do a lot of, you know, vocalizing like that. So, but they were standing up. They were jumping up, cheering. And, and some of the white people, they got up and walked out. And it, so it was like a big controversy as a result of that. You know, no, they wanted to take the award back. probably. Immediately. In fact, when they gave it to me, I said, are, are you all sure you got the right person? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now from the school to now, the farm and what you're doing right now with the 
Detroit Black Community Food Security Network? Yes. Okay. And going back to the school, in 2000, um, we started doing pretty serious organic gardening with the children at the school. Mm -hmm. And we thought that was important both because we think it's important for people in general and black people in particular to know how to grow our own food because that's the basis of trying to be self-sufficient. If you don't have control of your food source, then really you're in a, a very dependent situation. So we thought it was important because of that. But there was an, a, a deeper lesson underneath the more mundane lesson, which is having to do with children having experiences where they can connect with nature and to kind of realize their own spirituality. And so we wanted the children to work with the earth in order to develop this connection with the rest of nature. And so rather than just telling them about it in an intellectual way, giving them experiences where they were working with nature, we thought was a good way to develop this, uh, this inherent quality that children already had within them. So we started doing that in 2000 and we developed the food security curriculum. It was infused into every aspect of the school. Every teacher in the school had to have at least one lesson per week that had a food security tie-in. The French teacher, the gym teacher, the science teacher, the English, the art teacher. So it was part of the overall school, uh, uh, our overall school. So anyway, so this continued. Then about 2003, uh, we had parents that started coming to us and said, well, I want a garden in my yard. And teachers who said that. So we created something called the Shamba Organic Garden Collective. And Shamba is a Kiswahili word that means small farm. And so we had about 20 gardens around the city. And we had a crew called the Groundbreakers that would go out on Saturday morning and till people's garden and prepare it. We were trying to remove the most labor intensive part that services an impediment. And so that all people had to do was plant. And so even with that, some people still didn't plant the garden. We did all that work and some people still didn't plant it. But still we were developing a momentum. And so we had this, uh, this, this collective of about 20 gardens. And then I started to, to learn about this larger food movement, that we weren't the only ones doing this work. And uh, in 2005, I went to a conference in Atlanta of a group called the Community Food Security Coalition. And my mentor in this work, who lives in Toronto, asked me to present at the conference with him. So I presented about the work we were doing at the school. He presented about the work he was doing in Toronto. I saw at this conference that what was happening throughout the country was almost all the communities that urban gardening or what we call food security or food justice work was being done were communities of color, African-American or Latino communities. But most of the groups leading the work were white-led nonprofits. And so being a long-term black activist, that didn't sit well with me. And the same thing was happening in Detroit. So in 2006, I called a meeting to form the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network so that uh, Detroit's African-American population could have a voice within the food movement, but more importantly, could provide leadership. If we're at least 80% of the population, we don't need to just be at the table. We need to be leading it. And so that's the kind of energy that we came with. And uh, we kind of have changed the whole public discourse in Detroit about urban agriculture by bringing this very sharp critique of the system of white supremacy and how it's applied to the food system. And so we've had a great deal of success in winning people over and uh, creating D-Town Farm, which is the largest of the many agricultural projects in the city. We led the creation of the Detroit Food Policy Council and have, have had influence on Detroit's elected and, political, elected and appointed political leadership in seeing how food fits into the, the reimagining of the city of Detroit. Okay, where is it located? Uh, D-Town Farm is located in Rouge Park. 
at 14027 West Outer Drive between Plymouth and Chicago. Okay, how can people get out? You've been asking me to come out and help. One of these days, I'm coming. And really, I should, I, it should be imperative I come in the month of May. But how can people come out and help? What should they? Uh, well, we have volunteer days on Saturdays and Sunday mornings. Mm -hmm. I'm the crew leader on Saturday morning from 8 a.m. until noon. And so we had a crew out there this morning planting collard greens and planting sugar snap peas. And um, then we have a Sunday crew that works from 9 a.m. until noon. Mm -hmm. And that's headed by Mama Abba. I don't know if you know Mama Abba or not. Uh, she's our chief beekeeper also. Then we have a Thursday crew that will run until June. It's from 3 p.m. until 6 p.m. on Thursday. So people can come out any of those days and volunteer. And so for people who want to volunteer on a regular basis, we have a new volunteer incentive program where we're issuing what we call D-Town Dollars to everyone who signs up for this program. So for every hour you volunteer, you get a, a dollar that we've created that has a collard green where George Washington's face normally is. Okay. And so you can exchange that for the produce that we grow. So we know that everybody's time is worth more than an, a dollar an hour, but basically it's a way of just recognizing that time has value and that what they're bringing has value. And it's a way of saying thank you. It's a stipend. It's not really payment, but it's a way of kind of sharing. We're very much into a cooperative economy and uh, our organization is not, we don't think capitalism is a good idea. Um, and so we think within the context of a capitalist system, the cooperatives are the best chance that we have to galvanize our collective power and our collective economic uh, wealth and to try to better ourselves collectively. Okay, I'm gonna close out the conversation with the biggest part of my life of what you have, which is Black Star Community Bookstore. Yeah a rap album fundraiser, which to this day, I don't know if anybody else has ever done that there. And a lot of great shows there, your music festivals, one of my best shows ever. So just coming from the music festival end, when did you start the festival? Is it ever gonna come back? What's gonna happen with it? You know, at a certain point, dates become a blur. So I, I, I'll say that the bookstore was open from 2000 till 2009. So we probably started the festival about 2005, 2006. And so we were on Living on the Avenue of Fashion, which when I was growing up, that was like the spot. You know, if you want to get your little Italian mints or your all the loud colored pants black men were wearing back then. Billy's, yes, and Louis the Hatter. Yes, I remember Billy. Billy's was arrested. Billy's, yeah, I remember Billy's. Uh, Jack's Place also, I think, was up there. So... But it was the hot spot. But by the time I got there in 2000, it had really deteriorated and there wasn't a lot of business and there wasn't an anchor business to draw people to the area. So I was part of the business association and we were trying to figure out how to revive the Avenue of Fashion. And so the music festivals were a way of trying to bring people back to the hmm. Avenue. And hmm. so we did that for about three years and really absorbed all of the, the cost. Um, and you know we want to promote local talent and but get people in the area to buy books and to support the other businesses as well so but you know the book business is a really hard business to be in uh, especially in this time period because books first of all many people in our community don't read we, we had a focus on conscious black books we weren't selling urban fiction you know the kind of you know people kept telling me well you need to have Donald Goins and Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, I know that has value, but that's not really where we're trying to go. You know, we're trying to have things that are uplifting, children's books, books teachers can use, books on nutrition, books on various philosophies, books on religion, 
you know, books on our history. So we were trying to have some serious publications that could really help to uplift our, our consciousness. And so, you know, those aren't the best sellers in the black community, number one. No. And then number two, electronic books and Amazon started coming on the scene and it changed the whole game, frankly. Mm -hmm. So many people are ordering books online now or getting electronic books. And so competing in that environment was very difficult. And then about 2007, 2008, the, the bottom fell out of the economy generally. So we were struggling before that. But then with the general decline, the downturn in the economy, we just couldn't survive. So we closed the bookstore. I kind of cut my losses and closed it in 2009. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, closing, I'm going to introduce some of your music. Would you like to give any parting words or anything last that you'd like to say, share, or open up about? I'll just say that I, I feel blessed. Uh, and I usually start when I have a chance to talk by first giving praise to the creator and say that for me, the work I'm doing is a spiritual work. And so I always remember, you know, people conceptualize God, if you will, in various ways. And I don't even get into arguing with people about religion and I don't adhere to any religion myself. But, you know, I do um, believe strongly that there's a force that creates order in the universe and that um, and that right in the long run wins over wrong. And so, you know, I'm still kind of an idealist in that way, a true believer and believe that really if we stay on the righteous path and we treat each other right and we have good intentions that eventually we're going to overcome and that the people who are just money grabbers and land grabbers and who are selfish and greedy, eventually that way of life is going to fade away. And so if I didn't believe that, I couldn't keep going. So I think eventually, you know, that, that what is right and correct for the most people will win out. So, uh, so I always have to stay spiritually oriented, but then also I always give praise to my ancestors too. And I talked about my great grandfather, but clearly I stand on the shoulders of, of great, great, great people, not just those in my bloodline, but being from Detroit, you know, we talked about some of the, some of the things that occurred in Detroit during the time I was a child, you know, I mean, I grew up in Detroit with Dudley Randall here. I grew up in Detroit with Mama Imani Humphrey. I grew up in Detroit with... Uh, the Motown, I went to school right across the street at Boulevard Day Nursery, right across the street from where Motown was beginning. And so, you know, and then I had these teachers like Ronald McCombs and Melvin Peters. And so I stand on all of their shoulders. You know, I haven't done anything of my own accord. You know, I've tried to be obedient. I've tried to take all of the gifts and attributes that I've been blessed with and use them for the greater good. But, you know, I always want to acknowledge that I'm part of a historical continuum. And so I'm trying to maintain the same ethic that our ancestors had when they knew you had to be excellent you know excellence with no excuses you know if our ancestors coming directly out of slavery could could create cities and cre create uh, all kind of businesses and thriving cooperative uh, thriving cooperatives and, and, and butcher shops and schools and make their own clothes and they had no internet and they had no cell phones and you know if they could do that then we have no excuse but to step up and use everything that we have to better ourselves and to regain our humanity. So, you know, so this is a continuing process. And, you know, I appreciate the chance to reflect on my own life because it helps me to put it within the larger historical context. But this thing ain't over. And so I guess that would be my, my closing message that we have the responsibility to be the very best human beings that we can be. We have the responsibility, we owe it to our ancestors who died and sweated and struggled, right, under the most adverse circumstances. They did it, 
We have to do it. We don't have a choice. It's in our DNA. We're compelled to do it. And so, you know, my message would be that we have to obey that ancestral compulsion and we have to step up to the plate and be the very best human beings we can be, take our humanity back, be examples of what it means to be righteous human beings on this earth and really take control of our of ourselves first and going back to like that fasting because you can't have the energy and the drive to organize a community if you don't have control of yourself, right? And so starting with self, family, community, our city, right? I mean, we have to do this. We can't let people just come in and take Detroit from us and extract the resources and, and gives favor to people who just moved here five minutes ago where you got people who've been here for decades struggling to, to make a go of things. You know, we just, we can't sit back and accept that. And of course, I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir because of course you come from a family that exemplifies kind of resistance to, to what we're seeing happening in the city of Detroit. But you know, you know, like Malcolm said, we can't be concerned about consequences. And I'm not for being foolhardy, but we will never get our freedom until we're willing to to sacrifice for it, right? And so, and, and that sacrifice comes in all kind of ways. But if people, if you know, the, the forces that are working against us figure they can give you $20 and buy you off, they'll do it. And so we have to have integrity, we have to have fortitude, we have to have a sense of aligning ourselves with the spiritual force that creates order in the universe. And we have to have faith that we can you know, make a better future for ourselves than what we see today. So I would just, you know, really, you know, ask people to really dig deeply within themselves and pull that forward and manifest all of the gifts that the Creator has given, uh, given them so that we, for our collective good, not just for their individual good, but for the collective good. Thank you, sir. I couldn't think of a better first guest. It was a great conversation. You got a lot of gems for people to pull out. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it.